1: G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. This is the podcast where we confront the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific region. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. My name is Chris Farnham and I've been doing these podcasts for near on three months now. We have brought in some wonderful guests to talk about some really interesting issues, some topical issues and some of the broader strategic level issues. And we've had some great feedback from you out there as well, responding to some of the issues that we've discussed and also letting us know what you would like us to discuss. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to have a crack at a really interesting issue that has been suggested to us via Twitter, and that is cyber terrorism and cyber warfare. We're going to be talking to Dr. Adam Henschke and he is an applied ethicist working on areas of crossover between ethics, technology and security. He's a senior lecturer here at the National Security College and also a senior research fellow with the Deft University of Technology in The Hague, the Netherlands. His research concerns ethical and philosophical analysis of information technology, its uses, military ethics and the relationship between ethics and national security. But before we get on to that, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter using Apps Policy Forum. You can get in touch with us on email at policyforum.net and also on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society. Right now, let's hear from Adam. G'day, Adam. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks. Hi. And welcome back to Canberra as well. You've recently been overseas doing a few research projects. Why don't you start off by telling us about where you've been and what you've been looking at?
0: Okay, so I spent a little bit of time overseas with the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. And so I was a couple of weeks in The Hague in the Netherlands and about two months in Oxford. Uh, that project looks at ethical issues around terrorism and counterterrorism. And they've got me working on different ways that technology is disrupting
1: both terrorist
0: practices and disrupting counter-terrorism as well.
1: Well, what a coincidence because that's exactly what we'd like to talk about today. We actually had Simon pick up uh, on Twitter Ask us to discuss issues like cyber terrorism and cyber warfare. And I know in previous things that I've worked with you on, we, we do a little bit of uh, future gazing and how technology disrupts national security uh, or creates national security challenges that are sometimes unforeseen as well. So, really keen to have a good chat about that today. And why don't we get started uh, talking about cyber terrorism? Is there such a thing as cyber terrorism? Are terrorists lobbing bombs through the internet, or does it take a bit of a different shape for, than than say the would, imagination would suggest?
0: So, at the moment, there is what I would consider at least to be very, very little cyber terrorism, if any cyber terrorism at all. To be really clear about that, though. Terrorists use the internet, terrorists use cyberspace, but it's usually used as a vector for other stuff rather than actual cyber terrorism. So we can see something like social media and the way the um, so-called Islamic State use social media to advance their kind of political agenda um, and other such things. That to me doesn't count as cyber terrorism. That's using cyberspace for terrorist purposes.
1: And so that, that's cyber recruiting, cyber propaganda. Yep. Um, it's just essentially natural use of of uh, the cyberspace and the internet to achieve a, a secondary goal.
0: Yep. Yeah. So basically they're using cyberspace for communications. They're using it for recruitment. They're using it for propaganda. A little bit, tiny little bit of command and control stuff. We saw some examples of that in India a few years ago um, and also some use can, of can, can you
1: maybe go through that
0: example of the command and control, how they did that? Yep. Yep. So I'm trying to remember the specifics here, and some of this might be a little bit inaccurate, but there was the Mumbai siege. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't remember exactly what year that was. 2008. 2008. Um, During that siege, there were um, people, or some of the terrorists were looking at what was happening on Twitter and using that to guide some of their behaviours. I think this is right. That's right, right,
1: yeah. I believe, if I recall correctly, they they were seeing some of the... uh, Indian Special Forces troops where they're positioned and they're using that information then to train their fire on the troops.
0: Exactly. So that's one way that you can see that some of the the technologies are both being used as part of command and control but also the way that these new technologies disrupt both terrorist behaviour and counterterrorism processes as well.
1: How, how has uh, the digital disruption uh, created challenges for terrorists to conduct their, their activities.
0: So one of the main ones um, that springs to mind there right. is uh, effectively the rise and ease in use of encryption. So for a while there, there was a whole lot of terrorist communications that were going on you know, via the internet and um, using other technologies. Now that encryption and encrypted messaging is pretty common, that capacity to gather intelligence on their behaviours and their communications is significantly diminished. So this is one way that you had a bunch of new technologies come in, terrorists use it, or let's say kind of malicious people used um, communications for a whole bunch of ways or reasons. Mm -hmm. Then they were getting a whole lot of uh, surveillance and intelligence on them, now that encryption technologies are much easier to access, cheap, easy to use, et cetera, that's um, making it much harder to gather intel on them in, the, in those areas.
1: Mm-hmm. Are there any ways that um, the digital disruption has actually helped counterterrorism uh, in leaps and bounds, or is it a more an incremental change where, where they're usually one step ahead of the law enforcement?
0: I'd say it, it just depends on the specifics. But you know, it's with a lot of these things, um, to put it coarsely, it's an evolutionary thing where one group... Uh, develops an advantage, then the other group responds, they counter that, and vice versa, and just kind of goes on and on um, and you know the the particular technologies might shift, but you know this is a, a standard kind of adversarial thing, I guess, where the ineffective um, responses or ineffective processes they're not going to work, other ones work better so
1: so so what you said that we that we have not seen re- any real terrorist attacks, cyber terrorist attacks. Why not? We see we see states using uh, for terror attacks, uh, for, for attacks, say, the, the Stuxnet um, attack in Iran or the Stuxnet operation in Iran, where um, we assume it was the Americans and the Israelis were able to get malicious code into the Iranian um, nuclear enrichment processes to destroy the centrifuges without the Iranian um government or the scientists understanding why their centrifuges were falling apart. This is one of the examples that a lot of people use as a, a modern uh, cyber attack. Why don't we see terrorists using these same processes and tools to, to launch attacks themselves? So there's two, I
0: mean, it, it's a really interesting question and there's a whole bunch of different aspects to that but for me at least there's two relevant bits to answer first is the skill set needed so stuxnet was this essentially proof of concept that you could use cyber cyber means code um, these sorts of things to bring about some physical disruption um there's a uh analysis of cybernet or the various analyses of cybernet particularly as a guy ralph langer i think from memory he's one of the guys who discovered it and he's got a whole bunch of interesting research on it that suggests it required a whole bunch of different skill sets so it wasn't just computer programming but it was engineering they had to have access and understanding of the particular um, nuclear enrichment processes they had to test whether their code would actually work in the way in which they wanted it to so it you know, Essentially, it was a range of different technical skills that require quite a lot of time, quite a lot of investment and access to people who know the stuff. And what a number of people that I've spoken to suggest is for a, at least at the moment and probably still going into the future, if you're going to see actual physical impacts of cyber attacks, it's gonna require a whole host of skills to be able to pull that off. And that's generally the province of state actors. The other reason, and this is a little bit more speculative, but the other reason is it may not a cyber attack may not actually suit the purposes of terrorists. One of the main things about terrorism is they want publicity and they want people to know that they were behind a certain attack. A lot of cyber stuff relies on secrecy, relies on using exploits and not um, making it making people aware that you're using these exploits. And that actually runs quite counter to the notion of the publicity around the terrorist activity.
1: But, but, but isn't that just an attribution issue? I mean, like a lot of a lot of the attacks that have been launched, say the Sony attack and so on, where there's been hacks or there's been some kind of cyber-enabled attack on a company or, or, or a state that we assume has been launched from a state, but attribution is is very, very difficult in cyberspace. And that's the way the states actually want it. They launch their attacks so that it cannot be attributed back to them. Whereas the terrorist actors, they actually want the attribution, as you said, the the propaganda of the deed is what they're looking for. Um, So why would they not launch an attack that has very clear attribution where they don't cover their tracks like a state actor would? So again, this is you know a bit of speculation here, but
0: part of the reason why this might be the case is they so there's problems with attribution, as you point out, but also so far the vast majority of cyber impacts are going to be constrained to cyberspace, and that doesn't have the same social impact that say driving a car into a group of people has. Mm-hmm. And you know if you hear that a bunch of cyber terrorists um, hacked into a bank account and stole some money, you go, okay, that's bad, but I don't really care. You know, you, there's very little chance of having a strong social response there. And again, part of the purpose of, of terrorism, what separates it from a whole bunch of other activities is it's not just the publicity that comes from it, but the way in which that publicity brings about social change or their desire is social or political change, you know, for good or, or ill. And at the moment, given that the vast majority of cyber impacts in we constraints to cyberspace, my speculation here is it doesn't have the psychological or social impact that they're actually wanting. And so, you know, it's not really in their interests to pursue it in that way.
1: It's very hard to launch a cyber attack that gets caught on film yep. and then shown on TV and spreads across the internet and so on. So it, it doesn't have the visual impact and doesn't create that visceral response that terrorists are looking for as yeah. well. Can you see anything changing or in the evolution of technology um, and also the the dispersal of skill sets throughout society. Um, take a step back. We look at ISIS. They they had the tools of a state behind them for quite a long time. They had a lot of money, they had a lot of territory, they had access to a lot of infrastructure, and there were tens of thousands of people uh, that were involved in their movement. That is also that is essentially a state. The the organizations that you're saying are the only people that could actually launch a large-scale large, large scale terror attack that could, say, take down um, hospitals or take down energy infrastructure or something like that and cause real-world physical effects. Um, Is there a chance that we will see skill sets disperse throughout society and organisations be able to accumulate the kind of technological skill and resources that they will be able to launch a large scale attack or are there other opportunities that are opening up where we may see cyber terror attacks actually happen or is this just a a, a thing of the imagination?
0: So I think on the first part of that, um, it's true that there's, you know, people are gaining more skills and there's, you know, let's say a, a larger and deeper pool from from which people can draw from. The question is, well, you know, what's the what's the bang for the buck here? So, if they again thinking of some something like um, is or you know similar sets of groups, is it really in their interest to pursue oh, people and invest a whole bunch of resources in a set of activities that might not bring any kind of noticeable social result, or encourage someone to drive a car into a thing like here? You know the the resources issue is well probably one is going to get much more bang for the buck than the other. Um, so you know, at a guess, I'd say not so much on the first thing. Um, the second thing about the changing technology, this is an area that I'm I'm quite interested in and doing um, research on at the moment and into the future is what's generally called the Internet of Things, where you have a bunch of um, basically things so smartphones smart cars smart houses logistics etc 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 these things are in communication with each other they have a bunch of sensors and also there is some capacity to direct how they operate in the world again thinking of smart cars as the great example here you might have an autonomous vehicle that's basically you know in, in some way part of the internet of things as we get more and more of these things that are Open to communication and open to external control with very limited. Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers
1: in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60%
0: off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Cyber security that can bring about physical impacts in the world, my anticipation is then you'll get something much more like what we would consider cyber terrorism. Mm. So it could be, you know, hacking of cars, it could be hacking of homes, it could be hacking of logistics, you know, um, which isn't to say that People who are working on autonomous vehicles, for instance, um, they're well aware of these security risks. Like, you know, it's obviously their nightmare is to have their brand associated with, you know, terrorist takeover. So people are very aware of these concerns, especially when it comes to things like cars. But as we get more and more of these things online and more and more of their capacity to basically cause physical damage um, to people, put people at physical risk. My anticipation is this is going to be bringing us closer to areas of what I would consider cyber terrorism proper rather than simply using cyberspace as a means for, for other activity.
1: So, would, would you say that the greater threat probably isn't terrorism, it's actually criminal groups at the moment based on the skill sets that are out there and the ability to um, muster the resources?
0: I'd say so. Um, there's I mean, a huge amount of criminal activity. Um, on and using cyberspace and then there's the really interesting interface between criminal groups and state support you know in certain countries in certain regions you'll have criminal groups but they operate either under the protection active support of or just merely the permission of a, a given state so it's in some sense it's really hard to know whether it's a criminal action a state action a state endorsed action is this simply criminal activity is this cyber war you know it's some of the vague areas here are quite interesting, mm.
1: and I recently read your book uh, "Binary Bullets: The Ethics of Cyber War" that you've edited with a few of your colleagues. And I was quite disappointed to find out that cyber war isn't a couple of people sitting behind consoles at either end playing a game like Counter Strike or <laughs> Call of Duty, or even Space Invaders, yep. which is probably more my generation. Yep. So, I'd like to talk about cyber warfare as a as a concept. I think that there's a fair bit of um, misunderstanding or the, the terms are a fairly new term in society and uh, and what it means. Can you give me, a, in a few sentences, tell me what cyber warfare is or maybe what it isn't?
0: So this is one of these um, perennial questions that people sit there and ask, what is cyber warfare? And there's a whole bunch of different answers to that. One of the, the simple ways of thinking of it is basically, Warfare, that uses cyber means. Very simple, very vague description there, but the vast majority of military-related cyber activity is what we could consider a hybrid thing where you've got cyber means being used to help other standard military processes, standard kind of physical or kinetic force. Um, It's a much more open and contestable claim whether there has been and whether there will be what we can could consider pure cyber war. Mm-hmm. So here this is the idea like you're saying of a bunch of people behind a few consoles launching code at each other or something like that that's contained purely to cyberspace. For some people they consider that that might be cyber war, but for most of the most of the literature most of the people discussing this stuff say, no, nah, it's not really cyber war, it's cyber means in conjunction with a whole bunch of other military practices.
1: Cyber warfare is usually there to support or to enable some kind of physical action. I think one of the main examples, especially in the Binary Bullets book, is the actions of the Israelis uh, attacking Syria and using cyber means to take out their um, anti-aircraft, their radars and so on. Uh, But it was the the essential um, coup de grail was... The military uh, was the the kinetic strike from the aircraft and so the the cyber aspect was an enabling aspect or a supporting aspect
0: so one of the the ways that i like to think about cyber in this sort of context is seeing it as a force multiplier Mm. and or as a risk reducer so the force multiplier in in the case that you're talking about shut down the radars um and then you can send your jets over drop the bombs cool you're going to have a much more effective operation you know without the radar similarly where cyber becomes interesting in these sorts of hybrid operations, where you're using a mix of cyber and, let's say, traditional military means, rather than sending in, you know, let's say, a bunch of soldiers to physically take over the, the radar and you know, put their own lives at risk, maybe kill some of the enemy soldiers, if you can shut that down through cyber means, then you're substantially reducing risk to your own people. And in some ways, you know, in as per some of the conditions around just war, um, you're actually not putting your enemies lives at risk needlessly so you know even though you obviously are at war um, or if you're at war you can kill enemy soldiers there's still proportionality calculations that need to be taken into account and cyber plays an interesting role in how it can actually shift capacity and then shift the calculations that we're applying
1: so an interesting question is what is not cyber war where, where does where does cyber war become espionage or, or something like that so you, you talk about the military aspect so we use the the Israeli example of taking out the Syrian radars, and that was an actual conflict, a physical conflict. What about when the PLA takes the plans for the F thirty five or something like that? It's a military, it's military on military, and um, it's to gain a military advantage, but it's not warfare. How do we how do we how do we look at this? How do we so see? So the it? standard
0: answer to that is buggered if I know. <laughs> but the point there is and this is where I I find this stuff really interesting and exciting is, okay, you've got your standard account of um, warfare being, you know, physical engagement, bombs, bullets, these sorts of things. Um, You know, there's a still contestable, but the notion of... um, if you're going to go to war and if you're going to be um, justified in your response it has to be a response to what would be considered an armed attack so there was a a bunch of legal scholars a few years ago who wrote a thing uh, subsequently called the talon manual which looked at the if there's a cyber attack that causes equivalent physical damage to a standard traditional attack that would be considered armed attack cool that's a it's a military thing and the military might be justified in responding
1: it's an act of war essentially yeah Yeah. an act
0: of war but the interesting and really challenging thing is what about all these sub-war things espionage exfiltration of information um spying even placing fake information into your you know adversaries um whether it's in their networks their systems or even you know in society more generally um The first question is, well, is that war? Probably not. Second question is, well, if it's not war, what is it? And then, third, in terms of the ethics, for me, the interesting thing is, how ought we respond to those things? So, you know, one of the standard questions around the ethics of cyber war is, can you use kinetic means to respond to a pure cyber attack? And by that, you know, if someone uh, starts messing with Australia's electoral processes, can we drop a whole bunch of bombs if we know that X country is behind it? And that's, you know, it's one of the hard questions. and thing it's an area that a lot of people are grappling with where i think cyber becomes well, one of the things to think of in relation to cyber here is these are actually age-old questions. You know, what counts as espionage? What can we do? You know, what should militaries do in relation to gathering of intelligence? What can we do in response if we find out an enemy or adversarial military has gained intelligence on us? These are old questions. What cyber is making us do is revisit those questions, revisit the the concepts. What counts as war? What counts as subwar? Revisit the ethical concerns around that for a whole bunch of existing problems. But cyber forces us to think about it and maybe forces us to think about these old considerations in a new
1: way. You've, you've gone a ways to answering my next question, and, and that is, has the digital revolution, has cyber actually changed the way we do things, or has it just become an, addition, an additional tool that we use in the way that we've always done things? It supports warfare. It supports espionage. It gives us another tool to do what we've always been doing.
0: So the... The answer there is yes and no, um, or maybe maybe no <laughs> and yes. So in some ways, no. You know, this is standard stuff that we've been doing for years, decades, centuries. Um, again, thinking here of some of the, the ethics around warfare. There's a long history of looking at ethics to do with warfare that goes back three thousand years, and we can draw a lot from those histories, even in relation to emerging technologies like cyber and other and other things. So that's the no. You know, same old, same old. Where it's where we get a bit of a yes is there are some relevant differences that cyber offers, and then you know we want to ask how important are those differences. So you mentioned before the attribution problem um, that did exist historically, but knowing who is behind an attack, whether it's you know a kind of armed attack or equivalent to an armed attack or even espionage, cyber makes it harder. And much more effortful to find out who's behind these attacks, so attribution is a you know a novelish take on an old problem. Um, the lack of geographic space that's one of the really big shifts mm-hmm. and by that, I mean you know we could be attacked, and we are you know, Australia is constantly suffering um, let's say kind of cyber malicious cyber events from countries that are not geographically next to us. historically, territory was an important thing for militaries and for states and your main worry was people encroaching on territory and maybe invading it. Cyber can allow influence operations, mischief um, and a whole bunch of other kind of bad things basically to be done from a much greater distance. So this is where you see some degree of difference being brought about by the the changes in in reach and impact. Mm-hmm. One of the other areas that might make it quite different is the capacity to either influence or impact um, citizens. So socially, we're much more vulnerable now to cyber attack because we live our lives online, we have smartphones. You know, Again, if we think of the internet of things that's coming in, smart homes, smart cars, that makes civilians um, more vulnerable to attack than we might have been in the past. So these are some of the, the changes that make us kind of think or revisit some of the existing immediately some of the existing ethical issues ethical principles seeing how they change and then trying to work out is that change actually a relevant thing do we need to rethink our concept or can we apply the concept just in a slightly different way
1: and finally, just just to wrap this whole discussion up, we're essentially talking about a new disruptive technology, the digital technology, and how that has changed uh, terrorism and counterterrorism and how it's changing warfare and, and espionage and state-on-state behaviour. What are some of the disruptive technologies um, or any kind of disruption that you're seeing coming down the line that is causing you to think these days?
0: Again, my main interest is on this Internet of Things because you've got the combination of all the, at least from a security perspective, all the bad stuff of cyber with the capacity to impact people in a physical sense. And that is you know kind of the nightmare scenario that you've got. So... With Internet of Things, it's radically open, radically insecure. A lot of the devices um, can either be hijacked or used as part of um, cyber um, malicious cyber activity. Um, there was a case two years ago, I think, where a bunch of smart fridges were um, taken over, used as part of a botnet. Um, to shut down an internet service provider on the west coast of the US, they used, I think. they
1: used fridges. Yep. That gives a whole new meaning to the Cold War, doesn't it? Boom, there that's, it is. That's Rory's joke. <laughs> yeah. I have to give
0: him credit for that one. Yep. <laughs> no, he stole it from me, or maybe I stole it from him. <laughs> um, but that's, that's one example of the way in which the physical reality of the internet of things can actually also impact cybersecurity in terms of um, being able to launch big DDoS, botnet attacks, et cetera.
1: Nice. DDoS, can you
0: explain uh, the... Distributed integrity? denial of service, service attack, attack. yeah. Um, and so that basically, you shut down someone's web service, web platform, et cetera, by giving them a whole bunch of... Directing a huge amount of traffic towards them makes the that system um, shut down or unusable for a period of time. Um, and the way to do that is just basically... Uh, deluge them with uh, requests and responses Um, and if you've got something like an unsecured network of smart fridges let's say 80,000 unsecured smart fridges shuts down the internet service provider Um, and so it's that lack of cybersecurity in the physical things of the internet of things that creates kind of future or further challenges.
1: Mm, Excellent. Well, Adam, thanks very much for coming in and chatting to us today, and uh, we look forward to all of these greater challenges and scary things coming down the line for us. So thanks very much for chatting to us today, Adam Henschke. My pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you for joining us as well. That was this fortnight's National Security Podcast, and we will be coming to you again in about another fortnight with another podcast or maybe a podcast extra if something spectacular happens in the world. And given the way the world moves these days, there's quite a likelihood of that Also, keep your ears out for the regular Policy Forum podcast that will be coming out on Friday. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts from. And if you're on iTunes, please give us a rating. It takes a very short few seconds, and all you've got to do is press that fifth star. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks very much for listening. Speak to you next time.